Venus has active volcanoes. We get a glimpse of NASA's new lunar exploration suits, and scientists build a completely flat telescope lens. All this and more in this week's episode of Space Bites. As you know, I am currently obsessed with Venus. We've got this planet that has roughly the mass of Earth, the same kind of gravity as Earth. It's right next door, and yet it has gone to hell. The surface temperature is above 450 degrees Celsius. The pressure is like 90 times Earth pressure. It's hell, and you wouldn't want to spend one second down on the surface of Venus. How did it get so bad when it's so similar to Earth in all these other ways? Astronomers have the same question, and they have been analyzing Venus for decades. One of the most detailed surveys came from NASA's Magellan spacecraft that flew back in the 1990s and used a radar system to pierce the thick clouds surrounding Venus, and they were able to map the surface features on the planet. And one of the things they were looking for was active volcanism. Are there volcanoes on Venus today? One of the reasons why Venus might be so different from the Earth is because it doesn't have plate tectonics in the way that Earth does. And so at some point, its active carbon cycling system seized up and all of the carbon made its way out into the atmosphere. And then that created this super greenhouse effect. When scientists originally analyzed the Magellan radar images, they definitely found evidence that there were past volcanoes on Venus, but they didn't find any active volcanoes. But now scientists have gone back through this data very carefully, and they found an example of an active volcano. They found one volcanic vent that was one size when they first looked at it, and then it had grown over eight months of data to a larger size. And we see something very similar with volcanic vents here on Earth. Like think about Mount St. Helens before it exploded. You've got this buildup of this vent on one side of the mountain, and then that detonated and you had this enormous eruption. NASA is working on the Veritas mission, which is going to be flying to Venus probably in the early 2030s. And this will be able to do much more detailed analysis of the surface of the planet with another radar system. So we'll be able to check to see if this vent has continued to grow. Has it exploded? Has there been any change? And have there been other changes on the surface of Venus since we last made these detailed observations like 30 years ago? Now, exploring the surface of Venus would be amazing, but it is an incredible challenge. And I actually did an interview with Dr. Tibor Kremick from NASA Glenn Research Center. He's developing high temperature electronics and batteries that would allow a mission to explore the surface of Venus for days, weeks, maybe even months. So check out that interview here. Astronomers just ruined sci-fi Christmas. In 2018, astronomers announced the exciting discovery of an exoplanet orbiting the nearby star Epsilon Iridani. Now, the sci-fi fans of you out there will recognize that Epsilon Iridani is the home system for the Vulcans in Star Trek. And so Planet Vulcan discovered. They used the transit method, so to observe the light from the star and see how it dimmed as a planet was passing in front. And they found that every 42 days, it was dimming by the amount that would mean that there was a terrestrial planet orbiting the star. But good things can't last, and astronomers did a bunch of follow-on observations, and this week they announced that it was probably a false positive. They were able to find 
other stellar phenomenon associated with the star that matched that same period as the planet observation. In other words, there was some kind of flare or sunspot activity or something that changed the brightness of the star on a regular 42 day cycle. So the changes of brightness on the star are just due to some kind of activity on the star and not a planet. Sorry, Spock. This week, NASA posted its annual budget request. This time they're asking for their 2024 budget. And the budget was about $27 billion. And this is fairly normal. They do this every year. And in that they ask for budget to maintain the existing space missions, to, you know, do stuff like continue developing the Artemis mission, space launch system, all of the various spacecraft that are in development. But they asked for one new item, which was the development of a tug that could be launched to the International Space Station. And when the time is right, this tug would fire its engines and help deorbit the space station so that it crashes harmlessly in the Pacific Ocean, a place called the Spacecraft Graveyard. The original plan was that ISS would use the existing thrusters on board the station as well as various attached Soyuz, maybe Progress modules on the station. And then together they would all work to bring the station down at the appointed time in the appointed place. But relationships with Russia have declined thanks to its invasion of Ukraine. And so now NASA is looking for a way to be absolutely sure that it can deorbit the station when the time is right. Now, we don't know when this deorbiting is expected to happen, maybe in late 2020s, early 2030s. You know, every time that we get an announcement that the station is going to be deorbited sometime soon, people figure out a way to extend the life. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see this getting extended longer and longer. But it is an aging machine, and eventually it'll need to be scrapped. And I know you're saying, like, why don't they just? And then you've got a bunch of ideas. Why don't they just raise the altitude? Why don't they move it to the moon? Why don't they send it to Mars? Why don't they pick it up with Starship? And I promise you, like NASA has sat down and looked through all of these possibilities. And based on the budget that they have, remember I mentioned that budget request, the technology that's available, the maintenance that's required to keep this thing going, and what it would take to send this to other destinations, deorbiting the station is the best compromise for all of the issues that they face. But who knows, maybe once Starship is flying, it could change the dynamics of the math. And you could see some Starship flights fly up, gobble up parts of the International Space Station, fly them back down to Earth for refurbishment and then fly them again. Starship could change everything. But until it actually flies, we can't have any guarantees. New spacesuits for the moon. It's been 50 years since people last walked on the surface of the moon. And so all of the old spacesuits that were used in the moon are in museums, in archives, they are well beyond their functional date. And so NASA knows that it needs entirely new spacesuits for its upcoming Artemis missions. Once it can take advantage of new developments in materials technology and computers and all of the different advancements that have happened in the last 50 years. They've partnered with a company called Axiom Space to develop the spacesuits. And it's not exactly a contract from NASA. It's more of a partnership. Axiom is developing the spacesuits for their own customers, one of which will be NASA. But Axiom is basing their developments on a lot of the underlying technology and just discoveries and developments that NASA did as part of its moon missions, as well as 
its various extravehicular suits that they use for spacewalks on the International Space Station. We got an event this week where Axiom and NASA showed off what the new spacesuits are going to look like. And here they are. But there's something really strange happened. So instead of revealing the actual spacesuits, Axiom only partially revealed them. If you notice that the spacesuits are black, and that's not what you want when you're on the surface of the moon. You want a spacesuit that is white, that will reflect the radiation from the sun, help minimize the overheating that you're going to experience when you're on the surface of the moon. Why are they covered in black fabric? Axiom said they wanted to hide the proprietary technologies that they're using with these spacesuits, which seems really weird to me. Like, why couldn't they have just covered it in white fabric? What is it about white fabric that reveals the technology that black fabric doesn't? Very strange to me. So we still don't exactly know what these spacesuits are going to look like. We're going to have to wait. And then I wonder, like, who is the competitor? to Axiom Space. Like, who else has the potential to design spacesuits for the moon? I mean, like, it's a real short list. Like, the Chinese, the Europeans, uh, SpaceX. And I guess SpaceX is planning on sending starships to the moon, and maybe they're going to want to build spacesuits to go along with it. So maybe they can try to steal some Axiom technology at the last minute. I don't know. It seemed very weird to me that they were going to this length to hide the proprietary designs using for these spacesuits for NASA, which is always so public in everything they're doing. One of the coolest parts of the demonstration, though, was an Axiom engineer was wearing one of the suits and showed how they could do squats and lunges, and they could kneel down and get back up with a lot of mobility, much more mobility than we saw with the original lunar suits for the Apollo missions. But who knows? I mean, with all of this black fabric, we can't really see what's going on underneath. Speaking of landing sites, we got a really cool picture of a place on the moon called Malapert Massive. And this is one of the proposed landing sites for the upcoming Artemis missions. As with all of them, it is located near the south pole of the moon. What makes this place really exciting is that it's at the top of a 5,000 meter cliff. And then if you stood on the top of this cliff, you'd be looking across a gulf to another 3,500 meter cliff. So standing on the top of one mountain looking at another mountain. So it might not be the safest place to land and it might not be the most scientifically interesting place to land, but it would be the most dramatic place to land. And what's cool about it is that it's on a slope that faces towards the earth. And it's very difficult to get places that allow you to see the earth from the south pole of the moon. But this is one of them. I like this site just for the pure adventure of it. Like, I'm not sure if it's the best place to land, but it's pretty cool. The moon might get its own time zone. What time is it on the moon? It's actually a really tricky question. Since the moon orbits around the Earth, it's not in any one of our planet's time zone. And so when you think about the fact that there are going to be dozens of missions operating on the moon from dozens of different places on Earth, they're going to need to coordinate their activity to nanosecond accuracy in some cases. So an international community has come together to talk about the moon called LunaNet. It's led by NASA and the European Space Agency. And they are suggesting that they come up with one time zone just for the moon so they can then coordinate all their activities. But it gets harder than that. The moon experiences time at a different rate that the Earth does. The clocks run faster there because of general relativity. When you're down on the surface of the moon, your clocks run faster by about 58 microseconds a day. 
but it's different if you're in orbit around the moon. And so not only do you have to have a time zone for the moon, but you actually have to figure out a way to incorporate the time slip thanks to different amounts of gravity and the velocity of objects at the moon. It's a tricky problem, but it, like if you ever tried to coordinate activities with people in different time zones, like if you get that wrong, people are showing up to meetings at the wrong time. Imagine if spacecraft timing depended on that. Amazon showed off its new Kuiper terminals. We've talked quite a bit about Starlink as a way to access the internet, but there are competitors coming, and one of these is the Kuiper constellation coming from Amazon. This week, Amazon unveiled what these terminals are going to look like. They had three different models. One is just the regular consumer model that people will install on the top of their house. They had a small portable version and then a much larger industrial one that'll give you a higher bandwidth. The consumer model measures 28 centimeters across or 11 inches, and it weighs about two kilograms or four pounds. And I've got a Starlink terminal and they're much bigger and much heavier. So this is pretty cool. But the one that's great is the micro version of it, which will only give you about a 100 megabit per second download speed, but it like fits in the palm of your hand. And so you could be sitting at a outdoor cafe in France and put out your little Kuiper terminal and be able to access the internet. Now, obviously, all of the caveats about how satellite constellations are ruining astronomy need to then be added in your mind after all of the exciting things that I just said. So on the one hand, we'll be able to access high speed internet from anywhere on the earth. And on the other hand, satellites are ruining astronomy. Didymus is throwing rocks into space. When NASA's DART mission made its impact on asteroid Dimorphos, it flew past the larger asteroid Didymus, and it detected a bunch of rocks and debris in the area as it was on its final collision course. And astronomers have done detailed analysis of Didymus and found that this asteroid is spinning so quickly that at the equator, rocks are lifting off. They've reached escape velocity and they just gently drift off the surface of the asteroid. Then they fly around the asteroid in a cloud, but then the amount of gravity that they experience changes and they drift back down to the surface of the asteroid. And so Didymus is really at the very limit of how fast an asteroid can spin before it just starts to tear itself apart. Astronomers have found several examples of asteroids that are spinning at roughly the same speed as Didymus, but none faster, which means that really this is the limit. Any faster, and these asteroids just tear themselves apart into particles that then just go out into the solar system. I did an interview with Dr. Adam Frank, who proposes that we could create habitats in space using a very similar method, spin up asteroids, but surround them with a bag so that you can then have this habitat to live inside. So check out the interview. Now, I don't want to make you feel old, but it's been almost eight years since New Horizons made its flyby of Pluto. And then it's been about four years since it's made its follow on flyby of Erekoth. And all this time, New Horizons has been sending data back home and researchers have been studying what they've found so far. This week, we got a bunch of cool announcements from the New Horizons team about just some new, interesting discoveries they've made at both Pluto and Arakoth. So with Arakoth, one of the things they found was that it had this very strange, lumpy features on its surface. And according to their analysis, it looks like a bunch of blobs, snowballs, have collected together slowly and just formed this 
space snowman, snowball by snowball, which is kind of cool. They also did some analysis of the axial tilt of Pluto and are estimating that in fact, Pluto got this really strange out of whack tilt a long time ago, probably near the formation of the solar system. And that strange heart shaped feature on the surface of Pluto probably set in motion a lot of the dynamics that caused its tilt to shift away so extremely. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Space Bites. This is our weekly news segment. But of course, we do a lot of other content here on the channel. And the one that a lot of people say is their favorite actually is the questions and answer show that we release on Tuesday. Now, this is actually made from our much longer live streams that we do every Monday where people come and they just throw questions at me live. I have no idea what their questions are and I answer them and then we edit it down and we release the question show. We have an entire playlist of 215 questions and answer shows that we've released so far with one new one getting added every week. So if you're looking for more space content, we've got this giant rabbit hole that you can dive into We'll put a link to the playlist in the show notes. And of course, if you have questions, please put them into the comments down below on any video. I read every single comment. I collect as many of them as I can and answer them in my question show. Scientists build a telescope with a flat lens. Traditional telescope lenses are fragile. And if you want to make them big, it gets harder and harder to get them correct and hold their stability as they get larger. But a new technique is able to develop a telescope that is flat and involves using these tiny little lens structures that you can then collect together into a larger array called a meta lens. And scientists have been able to develop very small versions of these meta lenses, but now a team has been able to produce a fairly large version, about eight centimeters across and act as a telescope. And they're able to use this to take a picture of the moon. Obviously, it's a little blurry. It's not a great telescope, but it is completely flat. The technique for building it uses lithography, very similar to how they build computer chips. So you can imagine future chip fabs building flat telescope lenses. Now, there are a couple of applications here. Like one obvious one is like, let's build bigger telescopes that are completely flat. We don't have to worry about getting the curvature exactly right. But think about that bump that's on the back of your smartphone camera. That's because it has a lens inside of it. If you could use a flat lens, maybe you could have no bump on the back of your smartphone. And like, that would be ideal. But I'd really like the telescope. Red dwarfs are the worst. Now we've known that red dwarf stars are unstable and can produce very powerful flares, especially in the first few billion years of their life. And of course, because they produce these powerful flares and because their planets are orbiting very close to them, it's a very bad place to be. You can experience flares as devastating as anything the sun can throw out, but you are huddled up close to your star. And astronomers were wondering just like how common, how variable are these red dwarf stars? There are no missions that are constantly observing red dwarfs to measure their variability. That would be great though. But instead, astronomers looked through archival data for almost 20 years of observations, looking at various red dwarf stars again and again and again to detect their levels of variability. They categorized 177 of these red dwarf stars and found that they are all extremely variable, far more variable than larger stars like the sun. This doesn't mean that they're uninhabitable, but it does mean that any planets orbiting the stars will need to endure billions of years of variation, solar flares, a lot of activity. 
I actually did an interview with a researcher who is testing to find out whether red dwarf star light can grow plants. They actually did a simulator. They had simulated red dwarf starlight and they grew cyanobacteria and the results might surprise you. So you can check out that interview here on the channel. All right, those are all the news stories that we had today. Now, if you want to dive deeper into any of them, you can check out the links below. You can get even more space news in my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word, there are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at university.com slash podcast, or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon, helps us stay independent, and keep ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the Interstellar Adventurers, and the Galaxy Wanderers. And a special thanks to David Giltonen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us. All right, that was all the news that we had today. It's a big one. We'll see you next week.